0: Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word from the the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Father, I pray that you bless our time in the word tonight. That you would anoint it. That you would open our hearts to receive. Lord, that you would... um, Lord, that, that we would all be caught up in... Uh, what this book is talking about. Lord, that the vision that Isaiah saw would be the vision that you set before us as well, Lord, that we would see into eternity, into your purposes, God. Thank you, Lord. Send the Holy Spirit like the song that we we sang. Uh, For by it the prophets wrote and spoke. Lord, I pray that you would send the Spirit that anointed Isaiah to write these things, that you would send the Holy Spirit to anoint us to hear these things and to consider them and to learn them, Lord, and understand them. Open the eyes of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to kind of, I want to talk through chapters one through six tonight. Uh, Probably not line by line. That would take a long time. Um, But there is... There's something going on in these first five chapters. Chapter six is the calling of Isaiah. Um, there's something going on in these first six chapters that I want to underline. And um, so they, they serve, these five, the first five chapters are Isaiah's own introduction to his book. Okay? His calling is not until chapter six, which you would think that that would be the, the beginning of it. Isaiah has a preface to his book, and it's chapters 1 through 5. So we're going through the preface of Isaiah, Isaiah's own. I gave an introduction, my introduction, last week. We're going to read through Isaiah's introduction to his own book this week. Um, the subject matter is pretty plain in these, in these first six chapters. It is the condition, that the diagnosis of Judah and Jerusalem. The diagnosis and the prognosis. Right? What is wrong and what is the course of action? What's God doing about it? I read from uh, chapter two to start because it's one of the rare bright moments, (laughs) hopeful moments in these first five chapters. Uh, These are chapters of judgment, chapters of woe and warning. So he says in in, uh, chapter one, verse two, and this is sort of a summary of the, the, the condition, the state of Judah and Jerusalem. And this is what Isaiah is doing. is He's setting the scene and he's saying, this is what I was called. This was the state of things when I was called. Right? He sets the scene and says, this is the condition in which uh, Judah and Jerusalem were at the time that King Uzziah died and I saw the Lord. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And that's courtroom language. Okay, that's, all right, let's, and, and that happens a number of times through these chapters. There's a summons. All right, listen, we're giving uh, arguments here. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's it, in a nutshell, that's the, that's the problem. God has raised children, they've come to the point of their teen years, and they've rebelled against him. He says it's contrary to nature. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. Even an ox and a donkey understands the state of things, right? Who's in charge? But Israel does not know. My people do not understand verse 5 he says why will you still be struck down why will you still be struck down why will you continue you know what is going to happen right this is a child who continues to be chastised and in spite of that continues to rebel why will you know that the rod is waiting for you after you choose this thing why will you continue to be struck down why will you continue to rebel the whole heart is the whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. The body, the whole body. And this is the diagnosis, right? The whole body is sick. Verse 8. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city verse 9 is interesting. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And this is the first time something like this happens. And this is one of the big things I want to point out. Is that you could, I mean, you could title this Surprised by Hope. Surprised by Hope. Because in the midst of judgment, in the midst of Isaiah describing the problem, diagnosing this terminal illness that judah and jerusalem are under there keep being these sudden almost maybe surprised is is too uh, too nice of a word interrupted by hope intruded upon by hope shocked by hope right that's that's what's happening here because right in the midst of this they're rebelling the whole thing is sick And here, it's suddenly, he talks about a remnant. He talks about the mercy of the Lord. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So he describes three levels of failure, of rebellion. Okay, the first one is just a national rebellion. The institution of Israel, the leadership is corrupt. He also describes the religion of Israel. He says, it, they think that they're my people, they think that they are relating to me and worshiping me in the way that I prescribe, but it's not. It's nothing like what I truly desire. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? They were continuing to sacrifice. They were continuing to bring offerings and appear. When you come to appear before me, he says, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? The gathering of the people of God is nothing more in God's eyes at this point than just feet walking on the ground. It's just a trampling of the courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Why? Because their worship, their sacrifice, their singing, their gathering, their celebrations, their feasts, have done nothing to turn them from sin. They've borne no fruit in their lives. All of this religious activity, what does he say? I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I don't care how solemn you are as you assemble. If it's done nothing to turn you from sin, why why are you getting together? I cannot endure when you get together and there's just, there's known sin among you. What is all this about? If not uh, to turn you from your sin, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. Why? Because they're not produced in the end. It's just like when Jesus confronted the Pharisees on the issue of the Sabbath. (laughs) The Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Okay? Why are you getting together? Why are you bringing sacrifice before me? So he says, when you spread your hands out, when you pray, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen anymore. Why? Your hands are full of blood. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Wash yourselves. You're filthy and you're getting together in your evil deeds. You need to cleanse yourself. And then here we have a shocking intrusion of hope. It seems weird. He's railing on their religious gatherings and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Right? In the courtroom. Let us reason together. All right. You're on the stand. Let's see. Let's judge between you and me. And then we have a very strange phrase here. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. What? (laughs) Wait a minute. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you see the intrusion of a message of hope. Um, almost a paradox. He's mid-rant. <laughs> and he says, all right, I'm going to spell this out very clearly. You are full of sin and blood, and it's all going to be washed away. You see what's happening there? You're on trial. You're guilty, guilty. And I'm going to deal with the guilt. It's not what you expect. And all through this section, there are these moments where the expectation is doom and judgment, but there's somehow, some way, a seed of hope that kind of pokes up through the ground. It's a great little... uh, a poem. It's like a really well-contained, self-contained poem here from verse uh, verses 21 through 26. It's pretty neat. I don't have time to go through it, um, but you look at the first verse, 21: How the faithful city has become a whore, and the last verse, 26: Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Those two sections echo each other. And then as you go through the poem, the B section echoes the B section underneath. See, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Look at verse 25. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. So it kind of builds the, the, the problem and then God's solution. And I will restore your judges instead of the murderers. I will restore your judges and counselors at the beginning. <clears throat> Chapter two gives a picture. And uh, this is also a prophecy that, that uh, Micah uh, has in his book as well. But it's, that, it's the mountain of the house of the Lord, the city of God being lifted up. And this is one of the great prophetic images of the people of God, right? This is who we are. This is is God's purposes. This is God's promise to Abraham finding its its ultimate fulfillment, all right? The people of God are blessed so that they can be a blessing to all the nations, okay? And this is is a picture of this happening. In the latter days, the, the house of the Lord is lifted up. All the nations shall flow to it because they know that's where we need to be. That's where life is lived in the way that it should be. Let's go learn how they live life. And so we have the ideal situation. But then Isaiah comes back and he starts, he begins to describe, in contrast to that, he begins to describe the actual situation. Right? The ideal. Whoa. It's a captivating vision. You can't read that and, and not go, Wow. But then he begins to describe what's actually going on. Verse six, he says, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, this house that should have been at the top of all houses because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. They're no different than any other nation. They do all the same stuff. They've got wealth. They've got horses, they've got power, military power, wealth. Their land is filled with idols and they bow down to the work of their own hands. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. So in verse five, it says, "O oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Right. If we're ever to get to the place where the nations are to say, let's go there. Let's go to the house of the Lord. Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Isaiah says, we're not even there. Come, let us go walk in the light of the Lord. We're going to have to do it first. If the nations are ever going to learn how to walk in the light of the Lord. Oh House of Jacob, you could say, "Come, let us <laughs> guys let's let 's do this we're going to have to do it first because right now there 's nothing to differentiate you from the people around you. so after verse five, that whole section up till twenty one talks about how idols have completely uh, brought the uh, the house of God, low. That as they trust in idols and and bow down to the work of their own hands, it just leads to shame and, and degradation for the people of God. Verse 22. So that's what's actually going on in Israel in contrast to the city of God being high and lifted up. This is what's going... This is actually the state of the religion in Israel. Verse 22 begins another section where he's talking about the actual state of society in Israel. Okay, so the nations are, are supposed to say the Lord of Israel is God of all. The God of Israel is God over all the earth. And that's the way that we need to live. Right, you see that? Let us go to the mountain house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob as opposed to all the gods that we know and worship. That's the God we need to go and worship. And that he may teach us his ways so that we would live life in the way that we're supposed to. Isaiah then says, but listen, you're not in any condition for the nations to be able to come to you and learn anything and see anything about God because you yourselves bow down to idols. And chapter 3 Look at the way life is lived among you. Everything's upside down. People will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. (laughs) You see what's going on here? They're, They're just, they don't... The standard of leadership is very low, right? How's this for an election? Hey, you have a cloak, be our leader. <laughs> and then on the other side, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to lead this mess. There's neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make, make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Verse 9 is scary to me. The look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. They're proud. Maybe they had pride parades. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Sin gets a pat on the back. There's not even no one stopping to think. Hey, this might be the wrong thing. They have brought evil on themselves. Verse twelve: My in, my people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. Right. The Lord is rising to judge. The courtroom has been assembled. Verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, perfume boxes. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Chapter 4 Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. That's pretty curious. It's showing how society has completely unraveled. A husband is, a, a family is not what it should be. Everything's upside down. And in Isaiah's world, this would have been preposterous. Women, hey, we want to provide and do everything for ourselves, which is what they would have looked to a husband for. Hey, we want to do this, but just, we still want to be married. Let us be called by your name. All right? So what's happening is, They've completely crafted society in this, in this broken way that's totally upside down and, and, and opposed to the way that God would do it. There's nothing for the nations to see in Israel about how to walk. Okay. So the Lord says, I have a day. There's a day of reckoning coming. This, there is judgment coming. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, in that day, and here we have another intrusion of hope, <laughs> He's just said, in that day, I'm going to take away, I'm going to bring rottenness. Instead of perfume, you're going to go bald instead of having nice hair. And he says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And all who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Holy. And everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. I have a day when I'm going to judge everything, and somehow that day is also when everything's going to be made clean. You see what's happening here? Every time he gets to the peak of judgment, hope is right there. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Judgment is the means to this redemption. Judgment is not the end. Judgment is the way God is taking steps toward his people in order to make them the kind of people that he had always desired for, uh, for them to be. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day, smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. We're back to day one of the covenant, right? In, in uh, Sinai, the temple, God being with his people. And then chapter five kind of rounds up the whole preface with this song of the, the vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved a song concerning his vineyard. He says, i looked to it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Bad fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? What more could I have done? Are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold bloodshed. For righteousness. But behold an outcry. And then he pronounces these woes. There are six woes here. To finish out chapter 5. And it ends with. In verse 26. I will raise a signal for nations far away. How I'm going to judge them. I'm going to raise up. Nations far away to come and conquer them and take them out. Verse 30, they will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Bleak picture. There is judgment coming. And so Isaiah says, this is the state of things. This is where God's heart is. He's had children. They've rebelled against him. They think, that they're, they think that they're doing the right thing. They're gathering in their assemblies, but it's done nothing. They're full of sin. They're full of idolatry. They live life according to their own uh, morality. They don't care what I think is right. They've decided for themselves what's right. And they've decided based on what they see all around them in the nations. It has, it has turned them into a corrupt city full of bloodshed, of oppression, of wickedness. And all the while, my desire for them, the reason I chose them in the first place was to be able to exalt them and set them high so that everyone around, all the peoples of the earth could see this is what life is. This is who God is. Woe to those, woe to those, woe to those And Isaiah says, this is, this is the state of the world. This is the state of the world at the time of my calling. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. You see that? In the year that the Davidic king died, I saw that it was actually God on the throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the seraphim, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We talked some last week about holiness. There's three, there's threefold holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Remember, we've just said, woe, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. And Isaiah says, this is the seventh woe. Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And this is why he he has been convinced because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He got a vision of who God was, and it was in light of who God was that he saw his own wickedness. Right? He was looking all around. Hey, this is the state of things. God says this. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Oh, I see God. Woe is me. You see what's happening? Woe is me. And then another intrusion of hope. I am toast. (laughs) I'm in the presence of a holy God. Woe is me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, That he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. I'm going to be consumed by the holiness of God. No man can see God and live. Oh, here he comes. Here comes the seraphim. This is it. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So again, where we expect, our expectations are, this is it. This is the end. And in that very moment, we hear, there's a way. I've made a way. And it's God who has acted in judgment, but in a redemptive way. So the two, two big thoughts. That, I'm, that I've been chewing on this week. The first one is um, that the first step toward fixing the situation that we look around and see, the first step, and it's, it's I mean, to be honest, it's really scary reading through this because it seems very familiar, right? People proclaim their sin. Their look on their faces testifies against them. They won't argue with him if you call him a sinner. Yep. Everything's upside down. Society's unraveling. There's no righteousness. There's no justice. And there's woes coming upon the inhabitants of the earth, the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. But the first step toward any kind of Redemption or ministry is to to see, woe is me. Right? We're not going to do anything about the woes around until we see that woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Same thing with Jerusalem. Hey, in the latter days, nations are going to come. They're going to see God in Jerusalem and say, he is God. Let's serve him. Let's learn how to live from him. Israel, you need to walk in the light of the Lord. As 1 Peter would say, it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. So Isaiah says, Look at the state of the land, but look where we actually start. Woe is me. Woe is me. I am lost. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. The second part of that thought is from God's side. God looks down. God sees all this happening. What does God do? He calls a man. And he reveals his holiness to him. He undoes him. And then he atones for his guilt and says, go. Okay, we look around, we see the state of the world, but we need to come to the place where we see God and that's why we say, woe is me. God's looking around, God sees the state of the world and he's saying, who will go for us? Come, see me, see how lost you are. Now, be purged, be cleansed. And go, take this message into that world and go. God's answer to the state of the world is to call men to himself, call people to himself, to purge them, to let them see the state of their own fallenness, but also to see the extent of his mercy and his grace and to cleanse them and to to do everything necessary for them to become, as Paul would say, uh, qualified to be ministers of the new covenant. Made us competent. He's made us competent. Isaiah would say, how in the world could I be competent? God says, go. I have taken your guilt away. Your sin is atoned for. The second big thought is that all through this book, especially in these first five chapters, we see how Judgment and redemption are not separate actions. God doesn't judge so that he can now go and redeem. God's judgment is redemptive. Okay, And that's what the cross is. That's what the cross means. The cross, this all points to the fact that There's going to be a day, there's going to be an act that is equally judgmental and redemptive. Right? God's fully judging his people and fully redeeming his people in the same act. How can he do that? The cross is the answer to that mystery. The cross is that mystery unveiled. In the prophets, it remains veiled. They're kind of peering from behind the curtain, trying to figure out how is this going to work? God's decreed judgment. He's gonna do it. But he's also decreed that his people, that there will be a Davidic king on the throne for all time. How in the world is he going to do that? And the answer is in, in the cross of Jesus. In the cross of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, we'll read about later in Isaiah. And he became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name. He was a son of David, but he's also the son of God. So you see these two things intertwined with each other. Judgment and redemption. Always at the point of judgment, redemption is is right around the corner. And in fact, we'll learn is, is the same act. The act of God's judgment is always redemptive. In the Song of the Vineyard, he says, what more could I have done? But in the big picture of things, he's going, on, he's, he's going to go on and do even more for the vineyard. Right? They're coming to a point of judgment, a place of exile, but God's actually going to send his own son. And there's actually a parable in the Gospels. It's the parable of the vineyard. He leases it to tenants. He comes to get some of the fruit and they kill the people. He sends some, some more people to get the fruit and they kill them. And he says, well, I'll send my own son. They kill the son. All right, so God's going to get to the place where it's not just, hey, what more could I have done for my vineyard? But I have sent, I have become a man. I have come down, literally come down and gotten on a cross. What more can I have done? So at the end of Isaiah, we see this. There's eternal judgment. There is judgment coming. That isn't attached to mercy. Why? Because in the book of Isaiah, God was still going to be able to do. There is still more that he could have done. (laughs) Surprisingly. Isn't that amazing? There's still more that he's going to do from the perspective of Isaiah. After Jesus comes, it says that he's coming back not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So at the end of Isaiah, we get a picture of eternal judgment without end. Why is that? Because those are people who have looked on Jesus and rebelled all the same. Listen to the message that Isaiah is to carry to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What's going on there? It's kind of a curious (laughs) message. They've decided they're not going to listen to God. And so he says, what else are we going to do? We're going to have to keep saying it. What more can you do? We're just going to have to keep presenting truth. Keep offering. He says, I've held out my hands all day to a stubborn and rebellious people. You keep holding out your hands. He says, Isaiah, go. Keep preaching truth. Keep declaring the simple fact of God's desire to have a people in the earth who will walk in obedience to him. That's it. God wants an obedient people. God wants an obedient people. And the rebels keep... And the more they hear it, the more they harden their hearts. And so God's saying, they are going to harden themselves beyond hope. Right? How do they harden themselves? By continually resisting God's repeated advances, repeated extensions of grace. Okay? you see the heart of God in this? That's mercy. I will give you opportunity after. Even when I know you're done with me, I'm going to give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity so that when I come and judge you, I can truly say, what more could I have done to my, for my vineyard? He says, it's your sins. You have brought this upon yourselves. How long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants. Okay, the immediate context is there's, there's exile coming. It's about 100 years away at this point. But there's exile coming for you, Judah and Jerusalem. Because I just went through this with your older brother. And I know where it ended up. And you're headed down the same exact path. And the Lord removes the people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. I'm cutting down the tree, as John the Baptist would say. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and the holy seed is its stump. There we go again. I'm going to hack away and hack down all the way to the stump. And you know what we find when we get to the stump? The source of life. See that? This is what God's doing. You're going to continue to rebel and I'm going to continue to hack away and you're going to continue to rebel and I'm going to continue to hack away. Isaiah, you just keep giving them, giving them the word, giving them the message. Spell it out very clearly for them. And they're going to keep saying, no, hack, no, hack, no, hack. And finally, they're going to have absolutely nothing left and then it's going to be me. Later on, he says, I looked around and I wondered that there was no one to intercede. My own arm brought me salvation. Then at that point, God says, the Holy See, that's Messiah. That's God coming down in the flesh to redeem his people. There's no one left except Jesus. And that's what you have to see. There's no one When the Bible says, nobody understands, nobody does my will. There were faithful people who trusted in God, but he says, no one really gets it. The only Jew left is Jesus. That's basically what happens. And he says, what does Israel deserve? You're the last remaining member. I'm going to have to judge you. Kills him and then raises him to life. Right? So it hack- he hacks it all the way down, he burns it, he whittles it away, he, he prunes it all the way to the stub, and that stub goes into the ground, and God raises him up. You see what's happening? It just gets narrower and narrower. This is the shape of, of, of redemptive history. God creates Adam and all the nations of the world, then he has to narrow it down to a family. All right? I can't work with all the nations, I'm going to have to work with one nation— Then that family has 12 tribes, but he can only work with one of those tribes. And then it keeps getting narrowed down. And it all comes to a head. It all points toward Jesus, and he becomes the very essence of Israel. And that's why God can say, I've punished all of Israel's sin. Because in Israel, in Jesus, is encapsulated all of Israel. So you see what it's it's pointing to, what Isaiah is pointing toward, and he sees it in shadows and glimpses, is all of Israel being summed up in Jesus. And so all of the judgment that Israel deserves being laid on Jesus and all of the redemption and all of the resurrection that, that Israel needed in Jesus. And now, from the time of Jesus onward, It's all of us in him. And we've received every spiritual blessing in him. You see how that happens? It all points, it all comes to a head in Jesus. That's why he can deal with all sin on the cross. That's why it says that we've been crucified with him. Okay? But that's where this is headed. God's continuing, he's going to have to just hack away and hack away and hack away. And prune and prune and prune and prune all the way down to the stump. And then he can say, I've got to burn the stump. <laughs> and then he can say, the holy seed is its stump. That's the offspring. That's, that's the Davidic king. It all points to Jesus. Amen? So what is God's answer to all this? To take a man, to let him see his pitiful situation, but then to deal with his sin and send him back out into the world. And that's who we are. Right. It's great to see the vision. Oh, look, we as a church, we're going to bring revival to this place. We are going to be the answer to this city's problems. We see, there's so many problems that we can identify. But God would say, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Right? We don't go out and advertise, hey, nations. Can... No, they recognize that's where life is. That's, their God is God. Right, And that's what, we're, that's what we're destined for. So my, my encouragement to us tonight is, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us see the Lord high and lifted up. Let's say, woe is me, so that he can cleanse us and make us the people that the nation should look at and say, I want to follow their God. Amen? Amen. So that's Isaiah's preface. Five chapters of judgment. With this hope that keeps poking up. And then he says, all right, now I'm going to tell you the start of it. And then we get into more of the historical prophecies. He's going to talk about Ahaz in chapter 7. And then he's going to talk about some of the nations from chapter 12 and onward. So we'll get into some more of that. Chapters 1 through 5 don't really have an exact historical situation that they're speaking to. They're more general. Here's the general state of things into which Isaiah was called to then begin his ministry. Amen? All right, we're, we, uh, we made it through six chapters, uh, and I feel like that was even a flyover. So I don't know how we're going to get through uh, this whole thing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically chapters 1 through 6, which are Isaiah's intro uh, to his own book. All right, anything to share or ask? Any of that? Yeah? One thing that just really just
1: kept standing out up- to,
0: First value of the church is knowing God. Yeah. And the heading on the ESV I said, is Isaiah's vision of the Lord. Yeah. It was him knowing God, seeing God, coming to terms with who God was. That led him to a state of woe. Yeah. That led him to a place of humility, which ultimately led him to salvation, to redemption. Yeah. And I think it's a really powerful thing to know that our church's the core, central first value is knowing God, and it's in that that we find salvation. That's what, Isaiah, that's what happened to Isaiah right there. Is he saw God. Yeah. And he realized his state in relation to God. And it made him a humble man. Yeah. A humble man can be saved. Yeah. And all you need is one genuinely saved, humble man. Right? God can do what he needs to do. Through one man. Can make the difference. One man wrote all this. <laughs> and it, it shaped the nation of Israel. It continues to shape the people of God. Yeah. Amen. Anything else? I was thinking, um, I was
1: thinking at the beginning of church about how God is good and we say that God is good all the time. And about how a lot of times maybe even the subconscious suspicion that God is not good. Yeah. And I really liked um, how you how you emphasized how um, God's judgment really is redemptive. And sometimes we can get into a pattern, I think, I don't mean like we as a church, but just people in general can get into a pattern of seeing God's judgment and on some level thinking, gosh, that's pretty harsh. And then seeing redemption as God's goodness. But God's judgment is good and God is good. And... You know, we must um, we must be convinced of God's goodness yeah. in order to approach Him and receive from Him and repent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we we often think of judgment too. I think in, in far too individualistic terms, because like. What if God loves Ben so much that he's going to purge that thing in me that hurts Ben? He's going to purge it out of me because he loves Ben. right? That's judgment and love. But it's judgment to me. Something in me needs to die so that Ben can have life. right? We often think of it like a judgment and then redemption for me. But God's judging and redeeming everyone. Right? And when he calls us together, what he does in my life affects everybody else. That's why Isaiah, he saw, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm part of this problem, <laughs> and I need to be purged so that I can actually have a message to take. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's God's love for you that causes him to judge you and then cleanse you And redeem you, but it's also God's love for the other people in your life. It was God's love for Israel that caused him to purge Isaiah and send them send him out to the people. I'm sure he loved Isaiah too. But but God is God is up to much more than just working in the lives of individuals in isolation from one another. Amen. Anything else? Seems so quiet in here. It's uh, so peaceful. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just because the kids aren't around. Usually, about this time, there's like some wide eyes, like, "Oh my goodness, it's time to be done. I gotta get out of here. Everything's about to fall apart at the seams." <laughs> Yeah. Everybody take a deep breath. Yeah. What happens downstairs stays downstairs. All right, well, let's pray. Close in prayer. Father, I pray that you continue to open up this book to us. Um, Lord, it's, it's deep. There are so many layers Um, It's so profound. But Lord, it's also plain and it's simple. And the truth in it is for us. And we can grasp it, Lord. It's not hidden behind uh, poetic language. Uh, Isaiah was entrusted with with a message that the people could understand. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we'd understand it. And Lord, where we need to be challenged, where we need to to be brought uh, to a, a state of woe, uh, for something in our lives, Lord, I pray that you bring us there, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us. We'd see your holiness, God. And Lord, I pray that also um, for areas that that you have begun to to prune and refine and purify. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would also give us those glimpses of of what the end goal is, Lord, the redemptive end, the glorious end, Lord, that you'd fill us with hope. And that that would cause us, Lord, as Zach mentioned, Lord, that that would cause us to just trust you and yield to you even more, to yield to your full work, sometimes painful work. Lord, the dismantling that needs to happen before the construction happens in our lives. Lord, do it. We pray that you would do it, that you would demolish anything idolatrous in us, anything wicked, God, anything oppressive, unrighteous, unjust, anything that causes uh, us to live in a way that it does not befit the people of God or purge us and purify us. Or let judgment begin with the house of God so that the world could see who you are. Lord, I pray that our eyes would not be so fixed on the problems of the world that we would not uh, give ourselves to to be purified by you in order to be able to address uh, all the problems around us. Hallelujah. Lord, call us out, give us a message, and send us into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.